For those of you who are new, I add my welcome to Pastor David's welcome. We're glad you're here. What we do here is we preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're preaching through the gospel according to John. It's one of the most fascinating gospels. Uh, There are three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are very similar, but John has a really unique perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus, perhaps because uh, John was on earth one of Jesus's best friends. And so we're hearing this story from the lips of someone who knew Jesus as well, humanly speaking, as any person knew Jesus. And so it's an encouragement to get to hear his perspective on the life and ministry of his beloved Savior and Lord and friend. So we're going to give our attention to the reading of, of God's Word John 6, we're going to start at verse 16, and we're going to read through verse 21. This is God's word. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O Lord our God, We are amazed at your power and your glory. We are overwhelmed by your grace. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now through your word, for we, your servants, are listening. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you live in Pensacola, storms are a way of life. How many of you were here for Hurricane Sally? Most of us, okay. Uh, That one hit Pensacola in September of 2020, less than three years ago. That was my first hurricane here in Pensacola, and hopefully my last. Do you remember the Sanska barges breaking loose? I don't know how no one thought to tie those down. That remains a mystery and will forever. I I took patio furniture in from outside. I don't know how they didn't think to secure those barges, but they did, and they blew all over the place. How many of you remember all the trees that came down? Oh, my goodness. We were cutting down trees and gathering up branches for weeks after that hurricane. I still have a tree that is angled at about a 45-degree angle in my backyard because of that hurricane. How many of you were here for Hurricane Ivan in 2004? Some of you, less, but some of you were here. Now, I was not here for that one, but I am told that it was much, much worse than Hurricane Sally. Did you know that it knocked the steeple off the roof of our church? It was such a bad storm that it knocked the steeple off. Uh, God took the steeple and he put it in the field just beyond the basketball courts. And we, being good Calvinists, left it there (laughs) for who can resist his will. (laughs) 
we figured if God wanted that steeple off, he was going to take it off. And so uh, who are we to argue with God? Now, how many of you know that Pensacola's very first hurricane on record happened in 1559? I found a little snippet about it on the internet. It went like this. In September 1559, a a Florida hurricane ripped through the Gulf and destroyed the Spanish settlement in Pensacola. Conquistador Tristan de Lona had convinced the king of Spain that Pensacola was the best port in the New World. The colony was abandoned two years later due to the storm's destruction. Now, my guess is that you all know that storms are a part of life if you live in Pensacola. But what you might not know is that storms were also a part of life if you lived next to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is the largest freshwater lake in Israel. It is uh, about 64 square miles, and so roughly the size of Washington, D.C., It's also the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world, 686 feet below sea level. Only the Dead Sea is lower than the Sea of Galilee, and that's a saltwater lake, so this is the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. It's known for its sudden and violent storms. Storm surges blowing in from the east over the Golan Heights create waves as high as 10 feet high. If you'd like to see this for yourself, you can go on YouTube and search search storms on the Sea of Galilee, and you'll see some modern-day examples of the tumultuousness of that sea. Please note that those videos are only available after the sermon is over. (laughs) If you get bored during the sermon, we have coloring sheets that you can use. Uh, But please do not go on YouTube while the sermon is happening. Uh, It violates several provisions of our book of church order. (laughs) Now, at this point in the sermon, you might be thinking, hey, thanks for the weather report, Jim Cantori, Uh, but what does any of this have to do with Jesus? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with anything? The answer is everything. It has everything everything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with you, and it has everything to do with everything. Why? Because while it's often true, certainly true, that you can meet Jesus during times of peace and quiet and calm, it's also true that we usually meet Jesus in the storm. We usually meet Jesus When we can't breathe. We usually meet Jesus when our lives are falling apart. We usually meet Jesus after three hard miles of rowing. When we're cold and we're wet and we're tired and we're scared. And it seems like we're about to go down with the ship. That's literally where Jonah met God in the Old Testament. If you read the book of Jonah, you'll find Jonah not praying at all until he found himself 
in the belly of the great fish. Jonah 2.1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, which is the place of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Here's how the Apostle Paul described his own spiritual journey in the book of Romans, Romans 5. He writes, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Here's how Dave Ramsey described his own spiritual journey. He says, I met God on the way up, and I got to know him on the way down. In other words, if we want to experience the peace of God that surpasses understanding, the peace of God, the still waters, the wholeness, and the rest, and the shalom, we have to meet Jesus in the storm. In fact, he has to come walking on the water through the storm to rescue us. It is the, it's the only way. So how does that happen? Well, if you're taking notes today, here's our outline. As we think about this amazing story of Jesus walking on the water into the storm, we're going to talk about three things. The first thing we're going to talk about is the storm. The storm. Second, we're going to talk about the struggle. And then third, we're going to talk about the Savior. So the storm, the struggle, and the Savior. How does Jesus calm our fears? How does he help us when we cannot help ourselves? Let's take a closer look. We begin with the storm. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, according to Matthew's account, Matthew 14, all this happened during the fourth watch of the night, which is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The disciples were planning to row about six miles from one side of the lake to the other because it was much faster than walking around the lake until the other side. As they were rowing, all of a sudden, a sudden violent storm came up on the lake and began to batter their small fishing boat. So, what do we make of this? Now, on one level, a storm is just a storm. In this story, the disciples were facing a literal storm, literal wind, little, literal waves. And we see this throughout the Bible. There are all kinds of literal storms in the Bible. When Jesus calmed the storm in Matthew 4 and Mark and Matthew 8 and Mark chapter 4, that was a literal storm. Jesus and the disciples went out into a boat. Jesus was sleeping underneath the, the deck of the boat. The storm came up. The disciples cried out, Jesus, save us. 
He woke up, he went on to the, to the top of the boat, said, peace be still, and all of a sudden, the wind and the waves ceased. That was a literal storm. In the story of Noah, there was a literal storm. It literally rained for 40 days and 40 nights. In the story of, of Jonah, the problem was a literal storm. Jonah bought a one-way ticket to not Nineveh. A storm battered the ship and continued to batter the ship until the reluctant sailors, who ironically trusted God more than Jonah did, threw him overboard. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see the apostle Paul was in literal storms that caused him to experience a literal shipwreck. But with that being said, I think it would be a mistake to think that this passage is irrelevant to anyone who doesn't live in hurricane country. It would be a mistake to think that this story is only about fires and floods and earthquakes and other sorts of natural disasters that we experience in the world. It is about those things, but it's about so much more. In the Bible, storms are often metaphors. In the Bible, they represent chaos and confusion. In the ancient world, bodies of water were often very dangerous and mysterious places. Now, that's still true today in an era where we have sonar and radar and GPS. But back then, people often set sail unsure about whether they would reach their final destination alive. And so in Psalm 46, the sons of Korah used storm imagery to represent trouble, trouble that had nothing to do with natural disasters. The storms in Psalm 46 represent foreign armies who are threatening Israel on every side. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved where? Into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, there are countless examples of this throughout the Bible, but I want to point out just one more. It's my, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 4. I've not yet preached on it, and if I don't yet make it, somebody preach on it at my funeral, because it's an awesome passage. In Revelation 4, the Apostle John, the same apostle who's writing this gospel account of Jesus walking on the water, had a vision of the throne room of God. And in that vision, he offers up a fascinating detail. Here it is from Revelation chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He writes, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. We see that exact same imagery in Exodus chapter 24. We read this last week, and I intentionally omitted this detail because I wanted to bring it up today. In Exodus 24, we read, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement 
of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. In other words, God's throne is upon clear crystal blue glass. Why? Why would God be enthroned upon a sea of glass? Because God is a God of order. God is a God of peace. God is a God who calms our fears. God is a God who quiets our hearts. When Jesus comes back to make all things new, things in heaven and things on earth, there will be no more chaos. There will be no more confusion. There will be no more crime. There will be no more corruption. We will not fear the great Leviathan. We will not fear death itself. We will see the Lord our God, Jesus Christ, seated on his great throne, sitting on top of a sea of glass, as calm and clear and as blue as the calmest water that you've ever seen in your life. And we will know that it is finished Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and peace and wholeness and shalom. In this life, we will have trouble. In this life, there are storms. Sometimes those storms look like sickness. Sometimes those storms look like anxiety or fear, like loneliness, like despair. Our storms can knock us down. They can make us feel like there's absolutely no way out, like there's no no hope. But here's the good news. Jesus, our Savior, can walk on water. And if you trust him, you can too. You know, in the other gospel accounts of this story, There's a big detail that John omits from his version of the story. In that story, Jesus not only walks on the water, he calls Peter out to walk on the water too. And Peter walks on the water as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus. As long as he has faith, as long as he believes, then he too can walk not only through the chaos, but on top of the chaos. It's only when his faith falters does he begin to sink? And it is then where Jesus, who remains faithful and true, takes his hand and lifts him up to the place where Jesus is. If you remember that, then you can not only endure the storm, you can praise him in the storm. Verse 21, Then they were glad to take Jesus into the boat, and immediately... The boat was on the, uh, went to the land to which they were going. Second, we're going to talk about the struggle. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat, and they were frightened. What is your first instinct when the storms come? Now, some of us run and hide. Some of us get to the safest part of the house. There are many, many nights that I have spent where there's a storm warning that comes up somehow on Kate's phone. She gets these storm warnings, and she says, all right, everybody up, we're sleeping in the hallway. 
I have spent storms in closets and in hallways and in laundry rooms because in our family, that's the instinct. The storm is coming. You got to hide. Now, that's what you do when you're on dry ground. But what do you do when you're in the boat? What do you do when you can't go to dry ground? What do you do when there seemingly is no place to run or hide? Some of us in the boat start rowing. In this case, the disciples rowed three or four miles against the wind and the waves, meaning that they were rowing and rowing and rowing, and they were going absolutely nowhere. You cannot outrow your problems. You cannot outrow the storms. Now, you might say to me, well, hold on, Pastor Joel. I'm not in a little fishing boat. I'm in a big boat. I'm in a powerful boat. My boat can definitely survive all the storms. I got a big motor. Have you seen Titanic? Have you even seen the Poseidon adventure? Have you seen the perfect storm? Have you seen Jaws? <laughs> Deadliest catch? Hello? Everybody always thinks that they can outrun the storm, that they can outrow it, and they can outwork it, and they can survive it. If they do their best, it never happens. You cannot outrow your problems. You cannot outrow the calamities that we all face as living in this uh, fallen world. No matter how many times you watch the movie, spoiler alert, the Titanic always sinks at the end. Some of us in our culture are rowing hard as fast as we can in order to get away from God. Some of us in our culture are rowing towards money and power and sensuality because we think that there's safety and there's security on that far shore without Jesus. It's a lie. It's a myth. There is no safety. There is no security apart from Jesus. It doesn't work. If we row towards money, it works at first until we lose our job, until the stock market collapses, until the housing market collapses, until we lose our jobs, until the banks fail. If we row towards power, we'll be fine until we lose power, until we're demoted. We'll be fine until we realize that power-hungry people usually don't have a lot of friends because power-hungry people are using other people essentially as a stepping stone to get beyond them to where they really want to be. And they're willing to throw everyone in the world overboard in order to achieve that power. It doesn't work. If we row hard towards sensuality, thinking there's peace on that shore, it never works. It works until he breaks up with you. It works until she meets someone else. It works until we realize that we are now desensitized to the things that used to give us pleasure, and so we need more and more extreme versions of the pleasure that we've been seeking, only to discover that it's a dead end. It never satisfied. Apart from God, 
rowing away from him, it, it never works. Now, some of us in the church can critique the world and say, oh yes, those people are definitely rowing away from God, but not me. Let me challenge you. In the church, we often row as fast as we can to save ourselves without Jesus. We think, well, if I just do the right thing, it will be smooth sailing for me. If I just live the right way, if I buckle down, God will bless me. As the good book says, God helps those who help themselves. Now you're laughing because I hate to break it to you, but that's not in the good book. Unless the good book that you're talking about was written by Tony Robbins or David Goggins or like some kind of self-help motivational guy, it's in that book. It's not in Jesus' book because Jesus never said anything like that. Do you see the problem? In our culture, whether we're on one side of the fence, fence, good religious people, or on the other side of the fence, completely irreligious people, we don't need God, we are all rowing and rowing and rowing as fast as we can. We are scratching and clawing and fighting and working, thinking that we'll get to the other side of the lake without Jesus. It never works. We'll never get there unless Jesus takes us there, unless Jesus walks on the water, unless Jesus gets in your boat and says, it is I, peace, be still. Do not be afraid. If you allow me to paraphrase one word from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own rowing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Whether you're in the storm right now, or whether you see the storm on the distance, in the horizon, stop rowing and start trusting. Stop rowing and start praying. Stop rowing and start believing in the one who walked on the water into the storm in order to save you. The bad news is you can row and row your entire life, and it's as, it is as pointless as the disciples rowing three or four miles into a Category 5 hurricane. The good news is if you stop rowing and start believing in Jesus, he'll get in your boat, he'll calm your fears, and he'll take you to the other side. He'll do that Every single time. So stop struggling. Stop rowing. And believe. The third thing that we're going to talk about is the Savior. How does Jesus calm the storm? How does he save us? When the disciples first saw Jesus walking on the water, what exactly was it that they saw? Well, at first, according to Matthew and Mark's accounts, they thought they saw a ghost. Is that what they saw? What did they actually see? Well, the first thing that they saw was the God of power. The God of power. Verse 20, But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, let me give you an ultra-literal translation of what Jesus said here. It's exactly four words in the Greek. Jesus said, I am no fear. 
The first part of that tells us who he is, and the second part tells us how we should respond because of who he is. We should not fear because Jesus is the great I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you probably recognize that language. We first hear the name of God, the personal name of God. We, we transliterate it, Yahweh, in the book of Exodus, Exodus 3, when Moses is standing before the burning bush. Exodus three thirteen. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In other words, our God is the God who exists. He has always existed and he will always exist. In fact, he is the ground of existence. We exist because he exists and he holds us in the palm of his hands. In him, the Apostle Paul says, we live and move and have our being. By saying, I am, ego e me, Jesus is saying, I am the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. I am, Jesus says, the God who parted the Red Sea. I am the God that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel met on top of the mountain. In fact, the Ten Commandments written on the tablet of stone are written in my handwriting. Because I wrote them, I am the great I am. Later in John 8, Jesus will say, before Abraham was, I am. Ego I me, same two Greek words. The religious leaders were shocked. They said, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be the great I am. And Jesus said, they're right. They were exactly right. That was exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. At no point anywhere in the story does Jesus say, oh, you're misunderstanding me. I'm not claiming to be God. I'm, I'm claiming to tell you about God. No, no. Ego a me. I am. Here's the point. Can Jesus calm the storm? Absolutely. Can Jesus save you? Of course he can. He is the great I am, and because he is the great I am, we can rest assured that nothing, absolutely nothing, is impossible with God. There is no such thing as a problem that is too big for him to solve. There is no such thing as a person who is too sinful for him to forgive. Jesus is the God of power, the great I am. The second thing those disciples saw when they saw Jesus walking on the, boat, on the water toward the boat was the God of wisdom. The God of wisdom. Now, when I was studying this passage this week, what I always do is I pull out a, a notepad and a pen and my Bible, and I start making notes. I'm writing, and I'm thinking, and I'm studying. And one of the questions that really haunted me early on in my study is, why did they leave without Jesus? 
I, mean, I think that's a good question. I think most of us have seen Home Alone, you know, where the family uh, goes overseas to France, and there's little Macaulay Culkin. He's in the house, kind of a tiny guy, and there's a lot of kids, and they forget him. But how do you leave Jesus home alone? How do you forget Jesus? I would, I would not leave until I made sure that Jesus was the first person in the boat. Why would they leave without him? Well, Mark, in his account, explains. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowds. In other words, Jesus sent them into the storm. He sent them into the danger. He sent them into the chaos and the confusion. Why? Because while you can absolutely meet Jesus in the feast, we talked about it last week, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He is the bread of life. It's also true that we get to know him in the storm. Here's our reflection quote this week. It's in your bulletin if you want to read along. Sometimes you're calm and Jesus brings fear into your life. Sometimes you're afraid and Jesus brings calm into your life. He knows what he's doing. In the words of, of George MacDonald, Jesus Christ came and suffered, not that we might not suffer, but that when we suffer, we might become like him. Because Jesus is wise, because he absolutely knows what he is doing, he uses the storms that we experience in this life not to, to destroy our faith, but to strengthen our faith so that we might see him more clearly than we've ever seen him before. So, to paraphrase a quote from John Piper, don't waste your storms. God is using those storms to build your faith. He's using them to teach you patience. He's using them to teach you to stop rowing and to start trusting, to rely on him and him alone, not only for your salvation, but for every moment of every day. He's saying, you cannot do this without me. Jesus is the God of wisdom. The third thing that they saw was the God of grace. How did Jesus rescue these disciples? Did he stand on the shore in safety, sort of shouting encouragement to them? Did he say, hey, row harder, guys. You're almost there. Three miles to go. You can do it. I believe in you. Now, sadly, that is the Jesus that a lot of people believe in. Jesus is a good teacher. Jesus is kind of a super good life coach. He's a religious guru, and he wants to tell you how to live your best life, how to do things the right way so that you can find happiness in this world. Find your inner strength. The power to row is inside of you. That's not what Jesus said, and that's not what Jesus did. He walked into the storm. He walked into the chaos. He walked into their death in order to give them 
his life. That is the gospel. Jesus took our death in order to give us his life. He walked into our chaos and our confusion in order to give us calm and clarity and peace. In a moment, we're going to sing our offertory, and the offertory has a line that goes like this. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you've never failed, and you won't start now. Jesus is the God of grace. Do you believe that? You know, we, we all face storms in life. And if you're like me, your first instinct is to struggle and to work and do harder and better and more and to try to get out of the storm under my own power. The good news is that Jesus can walk on water. That Jesus can and does walk into our storms of fear and unbelief. The sins that we've committed. The sins that have been committed against us. He says, I am the great I am. Fear not. No fear. This is the God we serve. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who calms the storms that rage in our hearts. Lord, you are our great protector. You are our savior. You are our deliverer. We ask that you would forgive us for the many ways where we have attempted to save ourselves apart from you. Lord, whether we have lived lives of of just open rebellion against you, forgive us. Whether we have lived lives of quiet rebellion against you, forgive us. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come into the, into the boat, into our lives, that you would give us peace that surpasses all understanding, that we would know you as our Savior and our King. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you in the midst of our storms and bring us safely to the other side. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.